0: to this week's episode of Willpower. How's that for some tonality? This was a really, really great episode. It was an amazing conversation with a really beautiful woman who has some very um, powerful insights and some great stories and went through some things that uh, none of us, uh, and I'm speaking about or talking to rather, um, you know, the new generation the youth me you listening if you're youth uh went through things that we'll probably never have to experience god forbid and um so this woman was named Diana Cole is named Diana Cole and she went through uh the Japanese concentration camps during World War II uh she was born during that time period originally was uh from the US and then moved up to Canada and she's got some really powerful stories to share again and some great insights. And uh, if you're looking for some, some truth, if you're looking for some genuine conversation, you know those conversations that last like two hours or more um, and you don't even realize how much time has gone by? This is one of those. And I hope you enjoy this. And here we go. Without further ado, this is the episode that I did with Diana Cole. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited and honored to be sitting here with a guest named Diana Cole. Um, now, Diana, uh, as I was listening to one of your, uh, one of your interviews that you, that you sent me, you said we must pause to consider those who are far less fortunate than ourselves. And that really struck, that really stuck out to me. And that's, uh, I think that's gonna be kind of a theme for our conversation here. And I think it's a really, it's really val- valuable to add that kind of perspective. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, So why don't we start off with a little bit of a history for yourself, where you came from, a bit of your story, and then kind of lead up to where you are now and just let the audience know who you are.
1: Wow, that's a tall task because I'm 76 years old now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I will try to be brief. Um, I was born in a concentration camp during the Second World War in Idaho. And I spent about a year and a half there, and then my family uh, was released, and we were relocated to Chicago, although my father wanted to return to Hood River, where all my siblings were had been born and raised. Um, so I grew up in a very busy urban environment, which was actually extremely stimulating in many ways. Uh, I don't ever remember being bored in my childhood. Mm-hmm. and um, But it was also very stressful because everyone in my family had been traumatized by the incarceration. And they were having a great deal of stress um, trying to reestablish themselves. in a a very foreign environment. And so I didn't see my mother uh, hardly at all. And so as a young child at the time, I felt very bereft. Mm -hmm. And um, I was left in the care of my 80 year old grandfather Mm -hmm. who tried his best, but there was such a gap in age and in culture that I don't think we really truly bonded in a conscious way. We may have bonded in a subconscious way, Mm -hmm. but um, I can't even recall a conversation that we had. Mm -hmm. Um, And the uh, the dysfunction in my family was such that it was very difficult for me to understand who I was, what my value was, um, because I was surrounded by people who were giants, right? They were all adults and they had interests that were totally different from my own. Hmm. And, um, and there was, uh, a great deal of competition in my family so um which i feel was actually detrimental
0: i feel you. like a lot of people listening can relate to that yeah i can relate to that can you that yeah. just that feeling of you know your parents or uh, mentors or older people having different interests than you and mm-hmm. you trying to find your way through that yeah yeah so wow. it's interesting to hear that you experienced a lot of that even then growing up in the environment that you did
1: Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. you feel that in canada
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: Yeah, and my parents, of course, were a lot older than I was. They Mm. were old enough to be my grandparents.
2: Mm.
1: And they were born in Japan. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so their values were completely different than the values that I was sort of absorbing Mm -hmm. through the media and through school. And it was difficult for me to really navigate those differences, and to understand that just because our values were different from, say, Walt Disney mm-hmm. or Wall Street or the church down the street, we weren't bad people. Mm-hmm. But somehow you feel, you sort of internalize this feeling that, gosh, you know, I don't quite get it. And does that make me bad? Mm-hmm. And I think that children definitely struggle with that feeling of that your isolation or your cultural struggles can somehow appear to be a character defect in yourself Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or a psychological um, maladaption when actually it's just a quandary when we're growing up even in my elder years we're all faced with quandaries of one kind or another and in a sense these are issues that we can learn from Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that because we struggle there's something wrong with us just because we don't swallow the propaganda that's fed to us over the media it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us mm-hmm. it means actually that we are thinking sentient beings and this is a right that we have to create a path for ourselves that's meaningful
0: yes and we were we were talking about a little bit about that before uh, before we started recording this mm-hmm you know about um, about social media now, and just kind of relating that to the propaganda back when you were growing up, right? Yes. Walt Disney and yes. all that kind of stuff. I think that's a cool insight that you have there on that. That when you look at that, because there's so much of it now, with like vanity and you know portraying like the perfect life, how uh-huh. that doesn't that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your life.
1: That's right, and comparing. Comparisons are odious because that person's life that you may be envying may not be the life that suits you best. Mm. Um, Some people are more materialistic. Some people are more social and interested in their social standing. We all have different drivers for whatever reasons. We have an inner calling, I I guess I'd like to Mm -hmm. call it, that we cannot ignore, Mm -hmm. I think. I think we ignore it to our detriment. Mm -hmm. If we allow other people to decide for us what is truly of value, you sell yourself out. You you give up your life for some other person's idea of what you should be. Mm -hmm. And so I think the journey that we take in our lives is to learn what makes us happy, what pleases us, what fulfills us.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, My husband keeps saying an SUV is not going to make you happy, Diana. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I don't think, I think a car that runs and that you can depend on is, is something that can contribute to your Mm well-being, but I don't think it generally makes you happy. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think, um, for me, the materialism, although it seems very tantalizing, it's very seductive. There's a lot of seductive images out there about Mm -hmm. how you should look and how you should live your life. And, um,
0: where is it you think happiness really comes from?
1: Happiness comes from valuing yourself. Mm. And that was a truth that was conveyed to me by my mentor in Chicago. Mm. His name was William Horry. Mm -hmm. And he was this person who also was incarcerated in Manzanar. Mm -hmm. And he never let society dictate to him what was. Of value. Mm. He,
0: he decided.
1: He decided and he decided he would be his own person. Mm-hmm. And It was such a gift for me to know this individual to see someone who wasn't conformist
2: mm-hmm.
1: who didn't give sway to things that were false and he always stood his ground and fought for things that he believed in mm-hmm. that he felt would help society and it it was a wonderful gift to me and to have known an individual like that is more valuable to me than an SUV Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because I can always go back to him, my image of him, my, the things he taught me in the lowest moments of my life. Mm -hmm. And say, well, William came through and he always said, you know, believe in yourself, value yourself. And that means to value your own story. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Your story is not going to be like Cinderella Mm -hmm. or like Bianca Mm -hmm. or like, I don't know, uh, Michael Jordan. Right. All these icons, these really these distractors, mm. who take you away from your own meaning. Mm. And I think what, so to get back to your question, what what is happiness? I think happiness is about finding meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And that meaning is something only you can determine. And because that is so, that means that you are worth something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That your struggles, your passions, your talents, your, um, your your pain is something that can be woven into a story, mm-hmm. that can give other people hope, mm-hmm. can give other people uh, support, And possibly something to strive for. Mm -hmm. But you never want to become a cardboard copy of someone else. Because Mm -hmm. you're really, you're diminishing your own worth, your own voice, your Mm -hmm. inner passions. And it takes courage to live your passions. And not give in to all the voices around you that are... um, perhaps not as convinced as you are about what you're struggling for.
0: Did you experience that with writing your book or sharing your story?
1: I never felt that I never thought my book was going to be published or printed or read Mm. by other people. It was something I wrote to figure out why I was such a unhappy misfit. Mm. And Fortunately, in coming to Nelson, I met uh, many writers Mm. who were willing to sit down and take that, at least that initial journey with me. Mm -hmm. So I was in in an immigrant writing group and um, we decided that, the, the goal was that we would write our own memoirs. And so it was a nice, intimate little group that was very supportive of each other's efforts eventually disbanded but it got me started cool on writing this story and so i have to thank nelson for that Mm -hmm. um but i never intended to take it to where it's gone and
0: that's interesting that you um like you didn't you didn't foresee it getting to the point where it is now when you were in that group at all so this wasn't even really that expected or planned
1: Oh, not at all. Wow. Not at all.
0: Yeah. Um, tell, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, where your book's at now.
1: Where are my books at? Yeah, like how,
0: are... yeah, how far you've come oh, since, okay. those, since those oh, initial meetings.
1: Um, I received a $2,500 grant from CKCA, uh, which is the Columbia Kootenai Cultural Alliance in uh, and so this gave me the um, financial support to self-publish and after self-publishing and launching um, I also was the happy recipient and surprise recipient of the uh, Richard Carver Award which is an award given to emerging writers and um, I've Done presentations throughout the Kootenai in different venues, mostly the public libraries, but also at Touchstones and at the Langham. And I've taken it to Toronto where I gave a presentation at the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center.
0: Wow, that is so cool.
1: It was.
0: And you never expected any of that to happen?
1: No. No, not at all.
0: That's that, See, that's that's such a cool thing when you're doing something that you like to do. Like initially, that was something that you wanted to do was share your story, right?
1: Yes, I yeah. think we all do, or yeah. especially someone like myself who likes to communicate ideas. Yeah. Yes. It's and, so cool
0: to see it flourish, especially when you didn't think it would.
1: Yeah, and I, I, it was a surprise and it was very gratifying. And of course, I had support from people in the community who had connections in Toronto and my brother who had... Uh, A friend um, who was a professor at the University of Hawaii, so I gave a presentation there. I've spoken in Seattle and Mm. Oregon and California, and um, I've really enjoyed meeting all these wonderful people who were willing to listen to my story and cry with me. Uh, Wow. Yeah.
0: Were there a lot of people who went through similar things to what you did? related to
1: it? Yeah, well, what I found surprising was that um, there were individuals who I never expected to identify with my my story, as they did. In Caslow, I think it was, uh, a white woman came up to me and said, well, I know what it's like to be a misfit, too, because my brother Hmm. was um, in a wheelchair his whole life. And when I spoke in uh, Rihandel, um someone came up to me who was also white, and she said, well, you know, I feel like a misfit too. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's a universal feeling. Mm-hmm. It's a universal identity. Not everyone feels that way. Mm-hmm. But there are many people who feel that way. And then, of course, there are people who did go through the, you know, expulsion Mm -hmm. and confinement and, uh, you know, deportation Mm -hmm. um, who have read my story. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, there's one lady in... um, Toronto who uh, was interned in the Kootenai area and she's read my book three times because wow. she's in her 80s her name is Mary Morita her daughter lives in Nelson and she says I don't ever want to forget it wow
0: that's beautiful
1: it is and it's it's it validates yeah my story because this individual this wonderful individual, is allowing me to enter her sphere of existence Mm -hmm. and she's bonded with me in some way not just through our names because we're not related in Mm -hmm. any way that we know Mm -hmm. but that she found my story of significance and of course there's things that she's told me about her life that you know enhanced my understanding of the japanese canadian experience
0: yes i'd really like to touch on that Mm -hmm. the experience and um, if you could tell us a little bit of the the history here locally, you know, because it happened right here. It did. It happened right here in the Kootenays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, like I was telling you before we started recording, um, you know, we do learn a little bit about this in school from my experience. Um, but it would be really, really cool for you to touch on the history of that here, what happened here. Yes,
1: well, um, in 1968, when my husband and I came to Canada, as a result of his refusal to fight in Vietnam. um, I was very lonely and trying to acclimatize to a new culture that was Canada. And I managed to pick up a book by Ken Adachi called The Enemy That Never Was. And it just blew me away. I had no idea about the Japanese Canadian experience and the degree of suffering Uh, that they endured, and for the length of time, which was much longer than it was endured in the States. So, um, yeah, in 1949, that was the only time they were allowed to return to B.C., and that was far long after the war had ended, right? It was only until 1949 that Japanese Canadians, even though they were citizens, British subjects at that time, were Mm -hmm. allowed to vote, even. So um, it was just an eye opening experience. And it was very difficult in Toronto at that time for me to penetrate the Japanese Canadian community, because I was a newcomer. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I obviously I turned to books. And so Kenadachi's book was one. And he talked about, um, you know, the cold that the Japanese Canadians experienced in the Kootenays because, you know, they grew up on the coast. They didn't even have winter coats.
0: Interesting you mentioned this. Um, Sorry to interrupt, but I was talking about this with um, uh, my friend's mom, actually, just Mm -hmm. the other day because Mm -hmm. I was telling her about this interview I was gonna do with you. And she was talking to me about exactly that. They came from the coast. And then uh, she was saying how the wood that they used to build some of the homes here was wet. So when it dried up and cured, there were these huge gaps in the walls and it was just freezing cold. Is that kind of what you're alluding to?
1: Yeah. 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 And, and also um, uh, Mori told me that when she woke up in the morning, she would see icicles hanging from the rafters.
0: That's inside the house.
1: Inside the, the shacks, Jesus. really. And, but they didn't even have shacks when they first came. They were in put into tents. So you can imagine what that was like. And there was snow on the tents and everything. And the tents were collapsing. And so and then they were given these this green wood to build their homes. And I believe they had to pay for that. They Whoa. had to pay for that green lumber. And... Um, So this was really one of the biggest differences between the the, uh, confinement of the Japanese Canadians as opposed to the uh, expulsion of the Japanese Americans was that the Japanese Canadians were expected to pay for their incarceration.
0: They had to pay to be incarcerated. Exactly. And this is after the war, right?
1: This was during the war. So
0: during World War II.
1: So they had to pay for their own food. And they had to buy their own supplies. And they were starving in the first year because none of the local farmers would sell to them.
0: Because of the racial issues, the divide? Yes.
1: And then the Dukobors wondered, I wonder how those people are doing. This is how I was told the story. Hmm. And so they went to the camps and started selling Vegetables to them
0: well, so the Duke had compassion for them.
1: Yes, having seems like when no one else did having been Discriminated themselves right in Russia and in Canada.
0: So they had some empathy for them. Exactly. Interesting. They could
1: identify with that experience wow. of you know political oppression mm-hmm. basically and so eventually things got a little bit better, but David Suzuki says that first year was really bad. And it wasn't until the Duke Wars came that they were actually able to eat. And many, and people don't realize this, but many Japanese Canadians perished in those camps because they were malnourished, they were freezing, and so they developed TB. And so after um, the war was ended, uh, New Denver was turned into a sanatorium as a result of the number of people with tuberculosis wow. in the camps. And, and I think there are at least 200, if not 400 deaths that have been recorded. I can't remember the exact statistics. Oh,
0: from the poor conditions.
1: Yes, and and this is not often discussed. Mm-hmm. and and then um, it, and then when the war ended, Uh, and people were expecting to return to the coast, they were told, you have to get out of BC. You can either get free passage to Japan, or you go east of the Rockies. So that's why many of the Japanese Canadians ended up on sugar beet farms, because they did not want to have to go to a country that like two thirds of them had never seen. Right. Which it's is Japan were, for them? Yes.
0: Yeah, because they were born in Canada. Right. two-thirds
1: yeah. were born in Canada and were British subjects. So, uh, the, so there, the, um, the Murakami family, which is a very famous family from S- Salt Spring Island, they said they wanted to stay in Canada because they wanted to get back to their property on the Salt Spring Island. And at that time, they had not realized that their property had been sold off
2: mm-hmm.
1: by the public guardian who had promised the Nikkei, which is another term for Japanese immigrants, that the property would be held in trust, but instead they went and the, the government sold the property off for a pittance to many white veterans. And so when uh, I believe the Murakamis went back to Salt Spring Island, they were just shocked to find out that their property had been sold off. And when they asked whether they could buy it back,
2: the, you know, they were,
1: their offer was refused. And so they ended up with marginal land that they had to then rework and rebuild. But be t- before um, they had been incarcerated, they were flourishing. That family was doing extremely well on Salt Spring Island. They were selling strawberries to the empress. And the father had just purchased a piano for the children and had just, you know, finished um, the work on their large home. And they did not give up. These are extremely um, tough Samurai spirit people mm. they come from the Samurai class in Japan and, mm. and so there's this sort of um, allegiance to a code of ethics which is called the Bushido. Mm-hmm. And my family is, also comes from the Samurai tradition and that, that code teaches us, <coughs> excuse me, to always be honorable and to have compassion for others, and to always behave in a way that is um, worthy of respect, mm-hmm. and it, it's quite involved. But there are more, but there are ethical uh, teachings involved as well. And um, so the idea is that you you strive. You never, ever give up. And this is what the Murakami family symbolizes to me, is people who were, they actually had to live in a chicken coop in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And other people had to live in vacated silos. It was horrendous. And there was no potable water. And um, they still came through all that and worked in a restaurant to help one of their uncles, I believe, and then returned to B.C. in 1949. And um, and while they were in Alberta, I learned that the Japanese Canadians had to pay for their children's education, even though they were legal residents of Canada and their children had been born here.
0: And that's only because they were Japanese.
1: That's right. Because of their ethnic origin, because of the color of their skin. Basically, yeah.
0: So, uh, I'm sure there's multiple factors to this, but what was the Canadian government's reasoning for treating them that way at that time?
1: Well, it all came out of B.C., first of all. Really? B.C. and the nativist and racist organizations and the labor organizations um, are the ones who convinced Mackenzie King to uh, issue the War Measures Act. And this is also true in the States. So the Japanese Canadians and the Japanese Americans were doing very well. And I would say um, that the Japanese Canadians were doing better. If you see pictures of the Japanese Canadians at the Powell Street Church, the women are sitting there in minks.
0: Wow. So they were even wealthy, some of them.
1: They were extremely wealthy. I would say most of them because they were fishermen. Mm-hmm. They had over half the fishing licenses in BC. So you can imagine what that meant. And they didn't have one ship. They had a fleet of ships. They didn't have one house. They had properties. And they, there was extreme envy and jealousy
0: by the native canadians right by
1: the white canadians white canadians natives. yeah well and also there was some there was uh, a bit of competition between the native canadians the natives the indigenous and the japanese mm-hmm. and canadian fishermen but that's part of a that's a very minor aspect it was the european it was the yeah. european yes the settlers here yeah and And also the white labor unions saw the Asians as a huge threat and wouldn't allow us to become members of those unions. And that was true in the States as well. Mm -hmm. And so they saw cheap Chinese labor coming over. And then they saw the Japanese Canadians doing so well. And there were riots actually in Vancouver. The white labor members staged a riot in Chinatown, smashing the stores and beating people up. When they went to Japantown, which you probably know was not called Japantown, the Japanese reacted, the Nikkei reacted with bats and chased them out. But there were similar riots at the same time in Bellingham, Washington, and they, the white labor members, chased out the Indians from India. Wow. from Bellingham. So there's a great deal of resentment and competition between the Asians and the white settlers on the west coast of this continent. And when you see the level of uh, wealth that the Japanese Canadians had attained, um, mm-hmm. it is... And also, according to uh, the eugenicists at that time, these are people who are interested in race purity. They were very alarmed at how we were re- the 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 rate of reproduction
0: for the of Japanese the, of the Asians yeah. here.
1: You know of the Japanese Canadians and the Japanese Americans, and so they wanted BC to be an all-white province. I mean, it is called british columbia right
0: hmm.
1: so it was a colonized territory
0: wow so um it seems like a lot of what like it seems like a big reason for why the japanese canadians were treated the way they were it's because of perhaps jealousy and um it almost seems like they were lashing out or trying to get some kind of revenge or payback for something that I mean, the, from what you're telling me, it doesn't seem like the Japanese-Canadians did anything wrong. They were...
1: I don't think so. I, uh, but what happens during wartime, and we have to remember also that Canada was never attacked. Canada was involved in the war before Pearl Harbor, right? Because uh, the Japanese had invaded uh, Hong Kong, which was a British territory. So um, as part of being part of the Commonwealth, then it was cons- Japan was considered a hostile force, an invading force. And Japan was trying to extend its influence in Asia. And um, the United States was very reluctant to get involved in the Second World War. The people were. And so Roosevelt didn't have much of a base to declare war. But when Pearl Harbor and the attack on Pearl Harbor happened, then it became a rationale that he could easily use to muster public sentiment. And somehow Canada got caught up in this. And that, has, that area has not been fully... Um, Investigated, hmm. but there appears to be collusion because when the Japanese Canadians were deported, uh, I believe it was in 1945 or 46, 4,000 were deported from BC to Canada. Um, where was I going with this? Oh dear. Um,
0: <laughs> no, it seems. Um, oh,
1: yeah, okay. The collusion. Yes, the, the collusion. Uh, sorry, sorry. I, okay. I got back there. Um, the, the boat, the ship, the, the ship that took the Japanese Canadians to Japan was a US military cargo ship where Japanese Americans were also being deported. So there had to be communication going on between the two countries. And there had to be some collaboration at least we can prove that there was with regard to the deportation of the Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians. But we don't know to what extent there was collusion with regard to the expulsion, the confiscation of property, and the Mm -hmm. imprisonment Mm -hmm. of the Nikkei. But it sure seems (laughs) very parallel.
0: Mm -hmm. Is that where it originated from, the collusion? The...
1: Collusion is a political term, I believe, where people work together in secret.
0: Mm. And that but be- that's between the Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans.
1: No, no, between the government of Canada and the government of the United States, oh. that they were colluding to take advantage of a situation. Mm. And. Uh, The sentiments at that time that were propagated by the eugenicists were that you know there were certain races were superior to other races, Mm. and we appeared to be a threat because we were having too many children.
0: That was the only was that the only threat.
1: Well, that no, of course not. That was a perceived threat. Other perceived threat is an economic threat that they were doing too well that they. They ha- Doing half too the well. fish have Well, they had half the fishing licenses, right? But after they left, they had no fishing licenses, and then they had to buy them back. So you're robbing people of their economic uh, abilities to take care of themselves and to prosper, right? right. Even though the overriding... Uh, S- stated sentiments in Canada and in the United States is that you know we're all working hard we, we have a capitalistic system where talented talent and hard work is recognized mm-hmm. but there's so much in history that shows you that this is not true mm-hmm. first of all we stole the land it's not ours right mm-hmm. we came here as intruders, as in, invaders. Mm-hmm. Basically, we took land from people without asking. And um, so there's a whole level of theft if you look at mm-hmm. the story of history and how we don't really respect each other and how we try to get ahead at other peoples or other nations. Um, still we're welfare. doing that. We're still doing it, yeah. yes. Do
0: you think we always will?
1: I hope not because our planet is under severe threat.
0: What do you think it's going to take to stop that?
1: Well, I have to say that I think the pandemic is giving a lot of us time to think about what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. We certainly have time now to hear about all the reports around the world and mm. the oil spills in the Mauritius and um, the fires in the Amazon. And i th- it's a tragedy that the young people have to be s- are really Im- uh, bombarded with all this bad news that w- the older generation and the corporations have really um, inflicted.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: on the planet and by doing so you know the overriding narrative now is one of decline
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and um, so it's hard to really have hope Mm -hmm. and but in this time of the pandemic we have time to reflect and think about how we might change things because things are really having to change. Very, We're having to adapt very quickly.
0: I think that's where the incline is. There's the decline in all the news and all the crap that's going on in the world right now. The incline, I think, is the opportunity that we have here right now to make things better.
1: That's right. And so guaranteed annual income, I think, has to happen because um, there's so many industries that are no longer... um, viable at this time and so we're having to go through huge shifts Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean people can't contribute people can't work so we can devise a different world we can if we have the vision and the courage to to strive for those uh, ideals that we believe in. Um, People like Greta Thunberg and um, Black Lives Matter and uh, David Suzuki and um, there's so many people out there that are telling us that we have to change our ways. And when we don't listen, Mm -hmm. then COVID happens and COVID starts telling us, Mm -hmm. well, you know, you're gonna have to adapt whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. Now, how are you gonna transition? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Are you gonna go back to the ways that we've done before? Or are we going to try to envision a new way Mm -hmm. of living where we're not raping the planet and stealing resources of other nations?
0: Yes. Um, yeah, I, I really believe that it starts with yourself too,
1: mm-hmm.
0: changing how you feel and ch- changing how you see things and changing how, you know, not changing who you are necessarily, but I, I think that to change the outside world, to have some kind of an impact, I really believe that you have to be able to impact yourself.
1: Oh, Definitely.
0: Do you think that it starts from the inner world, from within, just you as one person, to help change the world? Because I really believe that that's—I think that's where it starts.
1: Well, I mean, it f- may, but it's also synchronous, right? It's—it's it's what you feel, and then you hear it echoed, mm. and so those—so it's synchronous. Your your power gets matched with someone else's truth, mm-hmm. and then you find a power in that, a validation in that, and then that leads you to move forward.
0: Mm. So it's like a synergistic kind of relationship exactly. with you exactly. and the outside exactly. world.
1: It is, it yeah. is. And and we need to create a society and a culture that recognizes the lonely voice, the outsider voice, the voice that is struggling, mm in order for us to become more compassionate and more inclusive so that we can move in a positive direction. If we deny the value of other people, we are going down a very destructive path, in my view. The the rewards are probably immediate but they won't serve you in the long run. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions you asked me about was love. And I think love takes courage. I think, and, and that courage comes from a belief. And you often don't have anything around you to, um, foster that belief. There may not be evidence Mm -hmm. but just because there's not evidence it doesn't mean it can't happen. You just have to be in it for the long haul. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Right? And (laughs) when I came to Canada in 1968 I had no idea that I would be here in Nelson sitting at gyro park talking to you about things that are meaningful to you, things that are meaningful to me. I could never have envisioned it. But had, had it not been for the love my husband felt for the Vietnamese people, that he knew he couldn't kill them, that he couldn't do the wrong thing. And so we had to leave the country of our birth and come to Canada to a new world, to a new nation, and make a new life. We could never have envisioned this. And yet now, when I meet Vietnamese people, I don't have to feel guilty. I don't have to feel shy. I feel like I have a bond with these people. And I've met so many wonderful Vietnamese people here in in Canada and in Toronto specifically who taught us about the i ching and taught us about feng shui and taught us about what it meant to be vietnamese when when the south was south vietnamese fell and so canada is a meeting ground for for so many people all around the world that you don't get necessarily in the states they call the states the melting pot but i think there's far more diversity in canada
0: there is because we were i think that we're a lot more cohesive here Mm -hmm. i think there's less divide between them between the different races and the between the different ethnic groups as opposed to the u.s
1: well certainly there wasn't slavery but also because you were part of a commonwealth Mm. you're already part of another community another Political community, where the United States is always talking about the individual, and them, you know, Mm. God bless America, individual freedom, right, all that stuff, that really is um, kind of detrimental to. It is detrimental to the sense of community
0: as a whole,
1: right, and to our sense of responsibility to others, right, and and war is an industry, and. It's an industry that has to end. And so Canada's selling armaments to Saudi Arabia, in my view, has to end. We cannot promote peace if we are selling and manufacturing armaments. We cannot believe in our fellow man if we are willing to create tools of destruction. And the number of guns in the United States has just really enslaved the people there because you're living in a constant state of fear and you're afraid to speak out. So how is that liberty if you're living in constant fear of being shot? Guns and violence are antithetical to truth and democracy Mm -hmm. and love. And And so believing in love takes courage. And so when my sister was um, expelled along with all the rest of my family on her birthday, on May 13, 1942, her best friend, Margie Bryan, who was white and of German extraction, showed up at the railway station where my family was going to be transported from with a birthday cake. Now, that little girl, Margie Bryan, showed up with her mother. They were both white, and they're standing there on the platform talking to my sister, who is considered the enemy, the despised people, surrounded by military, by soldiers carrying guns and she offers my sister a cake to this day I don't know if I would do I would be brave enough to to put myself in that vulnerable position because certainly by showing up there they could have been shot they could have been um, shunned, by the community of Hood River, Oregon, and yet they showed up. And so my sister boarded the train with that birthday cake. And when we, my family was confined in Tule Lake, California, in a concentration camp there, which is in Northern California, it's on the border sort of uh, between Oregon mm-hmm. and uh, California. Margie Bryan and her father came to visit my sister Flora and my sister stood Flora on one side of the barbed wire and Margie Bryan and her father stood on the other side And that takes courage Uh It takes thinking out of the box. It's it's an act of love
0: In spite of all of that hate and all that conflict there I think that that fence kind of symbolizes that
1: Yes, the barbed wire.
0: To be able to do that in spite of everything that was going on, yes. despite all the pressure. Yes. That's a beautiful thing.
1: It is, and they reached through the fence. And and held each other's hand and talked about how they missed each other.
2: Oh, wow.
1: And and talked about how they would see each other again. And these are the stories that inspire and show us that there is goodness in the human spirit if we are willing to act on our best impulses, you know, out of love and kindness and respect for the other. And uh, that's one of the stories I tell. Um, Wherever I go, because, and and it was, you know, these acts that Margie Bryan did or performed, as as a testament to her love for my sister Flora, was even followed up all through the camp days because they corresponded with one another. Mm -hmm. And then when Margie Bryan was dying. In Hood River of Cancer, she told her husband, When I die, I want you to marry Anike. And he did. Wow. So that was a belief. She had a belief and she was willing to live it, and she was willing to teach what she believed in.
0: She really led with her love and caring.
1: With her heart. With her heart. And did you know that the heart emits more energy than the brain? Hmm. This is what scientists have found. So if we act from the heart rather than from our cerebral, we may actually be able to cause more change to happen Hmm. than if we just use our ideas mm. so through actions through
0: our caring our love and our yeah, spirit who we right. really are that's
1: it that's it's
0: that's interesting you it. mentioned the mm-hmm. the heart i have this uh this like guided meditation thing i did and oh. it's actually on the a couple episodes ago something that i learned it's uh just an exercise where you place your hands on your heart and you feel your heart like you physically feel it beating close your eyes and you think about all the things that you're grateful for and that that kind of puts you in that state of acting from your heart. And it's a beautiful thing. It's almost like your all that negativity and shit just goes away. And like you're saying, the action, I think the actions you take, if you lead with your heart will probably lead to better things.
1: Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so by putting your hand over your heart, you're acknowledging and reminding yourself, mm-hmm. right. Of your best self. Reminding yourself to give acknowledgement to your best impulses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and um, I think that's the hope.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um yeah, and my sister Betty had a teacher. Her name was Mrs. Heaton, and she was her second grade, my sister Betty's second grade teacher in Hood River. And when we were in Tule, when my family was in Tule Lake, Mrs. Heaton. Took a trip from Hood River to go see my sister Betty and Johnny Tamino, who was also a Nikes student in her class. Mm-hmm. She wanted to see how they were doing. So these are acts of kindness, you know, that people go out of their way to acknowledge the significance of your life,
2: mm-hmm. that
1: you're not going to be forgotten, even though you are, you know, put away mm-hmm. in a camp.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um,
0: and yours will not be forgotten.
1: Yeah, and that's that's what that's what that's what friendship is, right? Friendship mm-hmm. is acknowledging the importance of you, your life, your values, and it's it's friendship is also an act of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to sound re- too religious about it, but it is. You're, you're you are you are investing yourself in the life of another person because you Mm -hmm. believe that something good is going to come of it not necessarily a deal yeah right although people network for those things but what i'm talking about is true friendship when Mm -hmm. it's heart to heart like that like nancy Nancy uh, and margie and flora Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: how do you think we can act more from our heart act more from that place of love and caring and maybe even experience a better quality of life that way.
1: Well, just like anything, I think it takes practice. It takes listening, and like you say, just acknowledging the fact that you have a heart by putting your hand over your heart reminds Mm -hmm. you. It reinforces to yourself what is of value, what really is the energizing force in your body. Mm -hmm. And it it is the heart. And then there's all the symbolism surrounding the heart, which is love and kindness and Valentine's Day and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think when you act from that, then you keep doing that. You keep acting out of a belief. And even though you get shut down, even though you get discouraged, even though you get hurt, you keep going because as the Japanese say, you, ha- you gaman, you endure. Mm. That endurance has to be part of that whole scenario. Mm-hmm. You've got to be willing to see it through to the end. Because if I hadn't lived to be 76, I would never have never held a book in my hand called Sideways Memoir of a Misfit.
0: That you wrote. Yeah. It's so cool.
1: You know, I could have given up at so many turns mm-hmm. because I'm not a particularly courageous or brave person. I'm all, all I'm often, you know, discouraged and and feel let down. But I think the whole idea is that if anything else, you can become an example to others, mm. right? Maybe you don't you don't become. Um, can i say maybe i'll never be like joy kogawa right as a writer or i'll never uh, but it doesn't matter you still have a place in this world you have a role to fulfill but you must believe that you must believe in yourself and this is what my mentor william hori told me he said think well of yourself No matter what anybody else says of you, right? Because we were vilified. We were the people that bombed Pearl Harbor when we weren't. We didn't do that. (laughs) But yet that's what we were told. We were told uh, there were pictures of us, and you know, we were gonna be spies and uh
0: completely vilified.
1: Yes. So you don't have to give in to that. That's what that whole idea of gaman is that you, you stand up for yourself, you stand up for your values, and you endure. Because that's what the human spirit is about because somewhere along the line, you are gonna help somebody. You may not even know that you helped them, but you have to believe that you did. And um, I guess it's that courage that gets you through in the long run um and of course, my love of the arts <laughs> that I, I um, was really engendered in me in Chicago by the pian- my piano teachers, by, you know, the Art Institute, by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the ballet, the Russian bolshe- bol- Bolshoi ballet, all these things. the arts give you such a wonderful appreciation
0: Mm.
1: of life and of the human spirit.
0: Such a beautiful representation of the human spirit.
1: Yeah. And then of course in Nelson, what do we get? We get nature. Mm. We have the comfort of nature Mm -hmm. if we take care of it, right? Mm -hmm. I get to swim here. I get to hike. I get to ski. It's beautiful. It's a fantastic, I mean, why wouldn't you want to live and enjoy this for as long as you can and ha- help pass it on to others, mm-hmm. right? So, I have much to be grateful for. I'm not. I'm not saying that I didn't struggle and that I haven't had a lot of heartache along the way, but I think that um, if you come on, in, along the way, you will be comforted. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I I have a lot to be grateful for coming mm-hmm. here to Nelson, the writing community, the, the arts community, and um, the encouragement that I've received here. And, of course, the Columbia Basin Trust. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything about this in 1968. Mm-hmm. And if I had given up in 1968, I would never have lived this long to meet you, Will.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's really an honor to be able to meet you and talk to you.
1: Well, it's such an honor for me to be asked and mm-hmm. to to meet you and to learn about how you hope to change things in this world.
0: Thank you. What would you like to say to the misfits out there right now listening?
1: <laughs> Come on. Come on. Endure. Endure. There's a place for you. Mm-hmm.
0: Diana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank it's you. It's really been an honor and a pleasure and more of a personal note, I've learned a lot from this conversation and it's really touched me. So I really have to say thank you. Well, thank you much. for
1: listening and thank you for the opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I hope you'll be my friend.
0: I look forward. it. I, I know I kept thinking I want to keep talking to you about this stuff after the show. <laughs> well, we will. Awesome. We will. Thank you very much, Diana. Thank you. to this week's episode of Willpower if you have something that you would like to share with the world an important message or something that you would just like to get out there let's get in contact, shoot me a message and let's have a conversation and share your wisdom with the world you can reach me on my Instagram page at WillWatt, on my Facebook at WillWatt or you can reach me at email and that is willpowershow at gmail.com we'll see you on the next episode guys, take care